0: Hi, I'm Dr Nikki Stamp and I'm a consultant cardiothoracic surgeon and I want to say thank you very much for asking me to be a part of this podcast and hopefully you will all learn something interesting today. Please don't hesitate to get in contact with me afterwards on my socials at Dr Nikki Stamp if you have any questions or comments. Now let's get into our case. You're a junior doctor working in the emergency department and it's 11pm at night and the next patient to be seen is a man called Mark who's 54 years old. He's turned up with two hours of severe chest pain and he feels really very unwell. Now before we go any further it's important to note that chest pain is a really common reason to present to the emergency department and usually we're looking to Find out if this patient's having an acute coronary syndrome, a STEMI, a non-STEMI, or perhaps angina. There are lots of other differential diagnoses for chest pain. Some of them are relatively benign, such as musculoskeletal pain. Sometimes we see reflux or other upper GI conditions, and other times we're trying to make sure we don't miss these life-threatening differentials such as uh, a PE or an acute aortic syndrome, so type A aortic dissection. Very often you can get a lot of clues as to what's going on from taking a really good history about that patient's pain and sometimes we use the acronym SOCRATES, so looking at the site, the onset, the character, the radiation, the associated symptoms, uh, any uh, exacerbating or relieving factors uh, and the severity of the pain. And sometimes that will give us a really good idea of what's going on. So let's get on to taking our history. So when we talk to Mark, he says that the pain is retrosternal. It feels like it's under the breastbone and it was maximal at onset. He doesn't think that there's any radiation anywhere. He can't feel it in his arms or through to his back, but he does have some associated nausea and shortness of breath. In terms of his past medical history, now I can't tell you enough how important a past medical history is to getting clues about what is going on with the patient. But in Mark's case, he has unmedicated hypertension. He was diagnosed about two years ago, but he didn't really want to take pills because he thought he was a bit young to be on any tablets. So he hasn't been back to his GP to get anything checked since then. He had an ACL repair when he was a young man after a a rugby injury. In terms of his social history, Mark is a -a pack-a-day smoker and has been since he's about 18. He works as a builder and lives with his wife and two kids who are both fit and well. He hasn't had any recent travel. His family history is interesting because his father died at around 50. He thinks from a heart attack, but he's not really sure. His mother is fit and well, and he has no siblings. Now, so far, there's a few things that crop up for me that make me interested. First of all, the uh, the description of the pain is retrosternal maximal onset pain. That's not a usual kind of history for an acute coronary syndrome, but it does make me think that an acute aortic syndrome, so a type A dissection, for example, is quite high on the list of the diagnoses. Likewise, likewise with having unmedicated hypertension, although, of course, that's also a risk factor for um, an infarction, but that also makes me a little bit suspicious. He also has this history of his father dying suddenly quite young, possibly from some sort of cardiac event. So those things are make, certainly make me suspicious that there is or could be something serious going on. So what we're going to do now is obviously examine our patient. Now, we'll start with the vital signs because they often give us some really good clues, just like the history. Mark's heart rate is 120 beats per minute and sinus tachycardia. His blood pressure is quite interesting The nurse did it first on the left arm and found that it was 80 on 60, which she obviously picked as being quite low. So she repeated it on the right arm and found that it was 170 on 100. He's saturating at 98% on 10 litres via a Hudson mask, uh, and his rest rate is 24. He looks a bit uncomfortable and unwell. His blood glucose is 4, completely normal. So now we're going to get on to examining him. We're going to start with the peripheries, obviously, and what we can feel is that his left radial pulse is actually a little hard to feel. His right feels completely normal. His JBP isn't visible, although you can't see it high or low, so you're not really sure if it's, uh, if it's normal or not. His heart sounds a dual, but it, his heart sounds a little bit quiet, and you think this is probably because he's quite tachycardic. You can't convincingly hear a murmur. He has bibasal crackles when you auscultate his chest, his abdomen is soft and non-tender with no masses and his calves are also soft and non-tender. His femoral pulses also feel a little faint which is a little bit concerning. So from the uh, history and examination it's starting to sound a little bit more like we could be looking at an aortic dissection. Now some of the things that uh, make me think of an aortic dissection from the examination. Would first of all be the difference in blood pressure between the two arms. So it's normal to have a blood pressure difference of ten millimeters of mercury. Anything more than that, we start to think that there is some sort of pathological process underlying that difference. The other thing that is is interesting. He's quite tachycardic, one hundred and twenty for a young guy who may smokes but is otherwise pretty fit. He does a fairly physical job. So that's also concerning that he's actually quite unwell. The pulse discrepancies are also concerning for some sort of vascular event, particularly that it is involving uh, the left side and both femorals makes you think that he has something going on in his aorta. So what we're going to do now is obviously do some investigations. And we're going to start with the simplest ones first. So we're going to do an ECG, and the ECG doesn't show anything other than a sinus tachycardia. Now, when you've got someone with chest pain, obviously an ECG is a really important test to do. It can give you the diagnosis. Uh, In this case, it's pointing us away from an acute coronary syndrome, or at least from a STEMI or a non-STEMI. The next thing that we're going to do is order a chest X-ray. A chest X-ray is a really good screening test to do for anyone who you think has um, Uh, an aortic event or some sort of intrathoracic uh, pathology it's also something that we do fairly routinely to try and exclude some of these things and what you find with the chest x-ray is that it's completely normal however based on the history alone we're going to go further and make sure that this patient doesn't have an aortic dissection so before we go any further let's talk a little bit about the pathology uh, and the presentation of an aortic dissection so an aortic dissection happens when there is an intimal tear, so the innermost layer of our blood vessels has a tear, and this creates a false lumen. So blood can actually travel within the media. It gives the aorta a kind of double barrel appearance. the um, The false lumen is the lumen where the blood is not meant to be traveling in. It is within the media of the of the aorta, and the true lumen is obviously, the the normal anatomical lumen. This this false lumen can be quite problematic because it can shear off the origins of important vessels, including the head and neck vessels, the coronary arteries, the mesenteric arteries, and also it can cause uh, malperfusion of those uh, organs supplied by those vessels. Now, because the tear occurs in the intima, a lot of people think that the problem with the aorta in this situation is the intima, but actually the problem is with the media. The media contains collagen and elastin fibres and other really important structural features that offer support to the media. The media la- medial layer, when that is diseased, such as in connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos, Lois-Dietz, for example that's when the aorta is at risk of tearing. And this can also happen with degenerative times. Now, there are two types of aortic dissection. We like to classify things. And the reason that we do this is that it gives us an idea of prognosis and it also gives us an idea of treatment. The most commonly used classification system is the Stanford classification. You may have heard of the terms type A and type B. So a type A aortic dissection is any dissection that involves the ascending aorta. Now that can just involve the ascending aorta or it can extend all the way down the descending thoracic aorta. As long as the ascending aorta is involved, that is by definition a type A. A type B aortic dissection, however, starts distal to the origin of the left subclavian. So it's involving the descending thoracic aorta. This difference is really important. So a type A aortic dissection needs surgery pretty much straight away, and that is usually managed by the cardiothoracic surgeons. A type B dissection can sometimes be managed medically through blood pressure control, for example, doesn't always need surgery and tends to be managed by the vascular surgeons. So that's a really important distinction to make. Now, moving back to our symptoms, as I said, there were some things on the patient's presentation and on the history that made me worry that this was a type A dissection. So type A dissection is much more common than a type B dissection, and men are affected uh, at a higher frequency than women. However, when women have a type A dissection, they tend to do worse. They have higher mortality uh, and more delays to treatment. It tends to occur in younger people. The most common age group affected is 50 to 56 years old, uh, whereas a type B dissection tends to affect people who are a little bit older. Type A has associations with hypertension and connective tissue disorders, whereas type B dissections we tend to see in people who are vascular paths, people who have peripheral vascular disease, dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things that I was taught at medical school about the way a dissection presents is that the classical description is that they have a tearing chest pain which radiates through to the back. Now, that description's not quite accurate. The most common site of pain for patients who have a type A dissection is described as retrosternal pain. If it feels like it's deep underneath the breastbone. It is maximal in severity at onset and it may or may not radiate through to the back. Now, the radiation through to the back, this interscapular pain, is more common in any dissection, whether it be type A or type B, that involves the descending thoracic aorta. So these patients sometimes have really difficult to control, very severe back pain. There are other associated symptoms that are more common with a type A dissection, things like syncope or stroke, which may tell us that the patient has involvement of the head and neck vessels and possible cerebral ischemia. When you see a patient who has symptoms of a stroke and chest pain, they have a type A dissection until proven otherwise. We also may see things such as heart failure from acute aortic regurgitation or uh, an acute myocardial infarction from a type A dissection due to involvement of the aortic root and disruption of the aortic valve or disruption of the coronary arteries. In addition, patients with a type A dissection often have deficits in the upper and lower limbs whereas a type B dissection will just have lower limb deficits. Now when it comes time to our our diagnosis we obviously need pictures. This is the best way to make the diagnosis. An echocardiogram can be done at the bedside and a lot of emergency physicians are now really adept at doing these kinds of scans. A transforacic echocardiogram is really good to demonstrate complications and show the direction of flow. It can show us if there's aortic regurgitation. It can demonstrate which is the true and false lumen. However, we only get really limited views with this kind of scan and it's very operator-dependent. It's not good enough to be making a decision on treatment, for example. A chest X-ray, as I mentioned earlier, is also a really common test that we do in ED when we're dealing with someone with chest pain. Now, chest X-ray is neither sensitive nor specific. However, an abnormal abnormal chest X-ray obviously prompts further investigation. And one of the things that we see and we're looking for is widening of the mediastinum. So in a patient who has a mediastinum greater than Six centimeters on a PA film and greater than eight centimeters on an AP film. That's when we say that there's a widened mediastinum and that's suspicious for an aortic pathology. The widening of the mediastinum comes from clot and inflammation around the aorta, which we see on the film. Essentially, though, what we want to see is a CT aortogram. And the good thing about CT aortograms is that they're widely available. Even here in Australia where I am, uh, even some of our most remote and small hospitals have access to a CT scanner and that's really important because it allows for rapid diagnosis. You can image virtually the whole aorta in a single breath hold. Just be careful that when you are looking at the scan that you're not seeing movement artefact at the root because sometimes that can trick you uh, into thinking there's a dissection when all you're seeing is just the movement of the aortic valve. However, what we need to see on a CT aortogram is the whole aorta from the base of the skull to mid-thighs, and this allows us to make the diagnosis but also to plan for surgery. So we sent Mark off to the CT scanner and confirmed our suspicions that he has an aortic dissection. His dissection involves the uh, aortic root and extends all the way down to his femoral vessels. So he needs to go to surgery. That is the most important thing. However, in the meantime, while we're waiting for the surgical team to come in uh, and get organised and take the patient off to theatre, it's important that we instigate some urgent management. So have a think now about what you would do for this patient while we're waiting for the surgical team to come in. So one of the most important things that we can do for these patients in the first instance is to give them some analgesia and we need to give them opiate analgesia because they are in often a lot of pain and that creates anxiety and can worsen the situation by increasing their blood pressure. Plus, it's just kind to treat patients' pain. The next most important thing when it comes to managing these patients though is to give them beta blockers and to give them quite a lot of it. Now, I have to say, this is the thing that is probably done the least well by emergency departments and pretty much every hospital I've ever worked in. So I'm going to explain to you why we want to give beta blockers. So if you imagine an aorta that's paper thin, or maybe even thinner than that, but it's very thin, it's under a lot of pressure, and often these patients are quite hypertensive because they're in pain, they're anxious. And the disruption of the aorta also impairs their baroreceptor re- responses. So we need to get that blood pressure down so that we're not placing undue stress on the aortic wall. So we give beta blockers for two reasons. First of all, it's obviously going to reduce the blood pressure. It's going to reduce the systolic blood pressure down to a much safer, uh, safer level. The other thing that it's going to do is reduce our heart rate. So it's going to reduce the uh, impulse of the blood pressure of each heartbeat. It's going to reduce the rate of rise of the systolic blood pressure. And sometimes we call this DP or DT. So DP on DT is the change of pressure in time. So we don't want to be smashing the diseased aortic wall rapidly uh, and repeatedly and heavily with blood pressure. We're going to bring that down a bit. Now, a lot of people don't give enough beta blocker. Depending on which hospital you work in uh, and which uh, emergency department and what drugs they have available will depend on what medication you give. I tend to use a lot of metoprolol and I give it IV and I give it in 2.5 milligram aliquots as it's needed until I get the blood pressure below 100. And we're aiming for that low number, for that the, the lowest number to be the systolic blood pressure. The blood pressure that we're measuring it off is the highest number, the highest reading of the blood pressure. There are some medications that we really want to avoid in aortic dissection, the first being GTN or nitrates without beta blockade. The reason that we want to avoid this is it causes a reflex tachycardia, which means that the blood pressure isn't going to reduce quite as as much and it's going to just beat uh, quickly and... Um, aggressively still on the aortic wall. If someone is still hypertensive despite having quite a lot of beta blocker on board then you can introduce GTM but you need to really be giving them a lot of beta blockade first. We also want to avoid using inotropes such as noradrenaline or adrenaline because that's obviously going to increase the wall stress and likewise we don't want to give too much fluid resuscitation. We almost want some permissive hypotension in this situation. Eventually, though, what we need is for these patients to get to the operating theatre. Now, the reason this is is that when aortic dissection was first discovered, it was described as impressively lethal, and that's because it carries about a 1% per hour minimum mortality if we do nothing, which means that 24 hours after the onset of symptoms, at least half of our patients have died. So surgery is the most important thing for them to have we want to prevent and treat the life-threatening complications of aortic dissection prevent the propagation and restore normal anatomy these operations can take a really long time minimum of about 6 hours and one of the biggest problems that they can have is difficulties with hemostasis or stopping the bleeding and the reason this is is that because of the dissection and the exposure of virtually the entire blood volume to damaged blood vessels The coagulation cascade is activated before surgery even begins. So they have impaired fibrin formation and platelet function at the end of what is usually a very long surgery. Now, depending on the patient's age, their anatomy, which parts of their aorta are affected, will depend on the operation that they get. Sometimes we need to repair or replace the aortic valve if they have severe aortic regurgitation. Sometimes we need to re implant. The coronary arteries, sometimes we need to graft the coronary arteries. Sometimes we need to um, what we call uh, re-implant the head and neck vessels. So what will happen there is that the head and neck vessels, so the brachycephalic, the carotid and the subclavian will be disconnected from the ascending, from the ascending aorta to the arch, I should say. Um, they will be sewn onto a graft uh, to another point on the aorta. Often we are trying to plan for future surgeries. A lot of these patients have residual type B or residual involvement of the descending thoracic aorta, and they will need future surgeries, including stenting down the track. So we're trying to make sure that those surgeries can be carried out without any complications and with some ease and technical um, doability down down the track. Now, hospital mortality for people with aortic dissections is reported in the literature of somewhere between 17 to 25%. Some of the things that increase early mortality include um, being older, having comorbidities, having malperfusion syndromes, including mesenteric ischemia or stroke, Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Uh, Men are more likely to be affected by type A dissection, but women are more likely to not have surgery or have a delayed diagnosis, which may result in increased mortality. Now, if we look at what we call the unnatural history, so what happens to these patients after they have surgery, they are going to be monitored for the rest of their life because they can have um, problems down the track with any untreated areas, Um, of aorta dissecting again they can have aneurysms false aneurysms degeneration of the aortic valve depending on what was done to it or not done to it so one of the most important mainstays of treatment for these patients down the track is that they have blood pressure control for the rest of their life and usually we would put them on beta blockers and sometimes we use ACE inhibitors or ARBs as well They'll have a screening CT scan usually every 6 to 12 months initially. Sometimes that can get stretched out depending on um, how old they are and, and what pathology is left over. Some patients will have to have further procedures um, and that can happen in around 25% of people who have a residual false lumen or so a residual dissection. Some patients who who die will die to late aortic rupture or dissection um, and that's uh, very tragic and that's why we try to prevent that by scanning them regularly and making sure that we maintain their blood pressure control. Now just to leave you with some take-home messages, remember that this is an impressively lethal condition and it's really important that this isn't something that we miss in the emergency department or wherever you're practicing. So always keep it in the back of your mind, particularly when you see someone with chest pain. Remember that the diagnosis is made on a CT aortogram and we want to get the base of the skull to the mid-thighs. Use beta blockers with wild abandon. You need that blood pressure to be lower than 100. If you're transferring a patient or you're waiting for a patient, invasive monitoring in a, a recess type area is really important because they can get sick quite quickly And surgery is generally quite successful, but these patients have lifelong issues, so they need to be watched very closely for the rest of their lives. I hope that was interesting for you. It's a big topic to cover. I hope that if you ever see this, you'll remember some of the things that we talked about today. And as I mentioned, please feel free to get in contact if you have any questions or comments. Good luck with your career.